We are back at it again, the See For Yourself podcast, the only podcast where you only have to reload at the most inconvenient times. I am your host, A Miserable Affair, and I am joined with Freebooter Stevens. Freebooter Stevens, our our local, not not entrepreneur, our local... (laughs) I mean, of sorts. <laughs> <laughs> an, an entrepreneur of sorts, certainly. A, a real self-starter. I have uh, sort of misled Freebooter Stevens this week. I told him that we were going to watch uh, Samurai Cop 2, and I lied uh, to his you, stupid... You piece of shit! You <laughs> absolute garbage human being! I, that, I woke up this morning only for this. I'm fucking leaving. Unfortunately, he's contractually obligated to stay, and we are instead going to be watching Dead Heat which I will now read the blurb for. Dead Heat is a 1988 film, and this is, of course, an episode where I have seen the movie and our dear friend Corsair Stevens has not. I'm going to go ahead and jump right into the blurb. A dutiful police officer tries to apprehend vicious robbers and something unspeakable happens to him. His partner recovers him and they go out seeking justice. Something unspeakable, huh? Truly, truly unspeakable. This sh- this should be cleared up really quickly. This is the 1988 Dead Heat, not the 2002 Dead Heat. There is a uh, there is a, a different version of it. I don't think it was remade. I think it's a completely separate movie, but uh, that should probably be noted at some point. I'm trying to think about what could happen to this guy that is unspeakable, that requires the recovery of a person. Uh, maybe maybe uh, the recovery isn't as as big of a factor. Maybe it's just sort of you know he arrives as something as this terrible thing is happening to him and helps him to escape just saves him in general or, or stops it from happening something like that there's there's a lot of options here i guess so and i i don't know enough about police things to know what dead heat would mean because I, I do did. like it when the title matters I did. I, let's let's talk about really quick why I chose to because I know that you've been you've been pretty hot for Samurai Cop two for quite some time now and I kind of wanted to I wanted to get your hopes up a little bit. Dead Heat is a beloved film that I have enjoyed for quite some time. I, I have a very big support of this film. I haven't seen it in a long time, so that's kind of why I've I've brought it up. And I saw that it was available. Something you know that I'm always doing is sort of looking up films that I remember fondly and trying to find if they are available readily for our audience to sort of find an easy way to watch them. And I saw Dead Heat and I just thought, oh man, I know Stevens is just all about Samurai Cop 2. And this is in my mind, I didn't know that Samurai Cop 2 existed when I first suggested Samurai Cop. And uh, we found out sort of during the process of us talking about it. And I, I quickly sort of thought about Dead Heat as an option. But at the time, it wasn't available anywhere. So is this is this like a similar thing to Samurai Cop in the sense that it's like um, a, a very tropey cop like buddy cop revenge story or it does, uh, it does mention a partner in the in the opening blurb a partner is mentioned in the opening blurb so uh we sort of have that buddy cop dynamic already baked into the the description for sure i'm just i'm always when you say a beloved movie of yours like i immediately become very skeptical because because samurai cop was a thing and uh, the movies you suggest are a different thing entirely now i have to think about what makes a cop movie a smart movie the the movie had a five million dollar budget so that we're he looking did? At, yeah we're looking at an entirely different ball game than uh, samurai cop would have had very different in terms of its budget i'm certain samurai cop probably had somewhere between maybe 500,000 and a million dollars attached to it and that's being very generous. We should also note really quickly that Samurai Cop came out about 3 years after this movie. So Dead Heat predates Samurai Cop. Okay. At this point you're you're a little bit more educated on this era of cop films. 
are there some things that you've seen in you know Samurai Cop that you think will also appear in Dead Heat? I'm I'm trying to imagine basically Samurai Cop with a with a better budget. So like I, I'm expecting to see like car chase scenes where they're like shooting out the windows and and uh, but because they have a higher budget, I bet like uh, we we've actually got the squibs blowing cracks in like the windshield and shit like that. Yeah, Samurai Cop d- did the thing with the guy on fire, and that wasn't done as well as I I, I would have liked. But you know, in Dead Heat, they've got a better budget. So it'll probably be a more believable effect and not have the guy <laughs> ruining the whole thing. I don't mean to uh, sort of inflate your uh, theory here, but the name of the movie is Dead Heat. What if, and I'm purely saying what if, I'm not saying this is what's happening here, but what if? I remember, you know, vividly you talking about, oh man, the fire effects for this guy running around on fire in this movie are so bad from Samurai Cop. And then I went out of my way to find a movie where the whole plot is just people being lit on fire. <laughs> oh God. That, you know what? That's the unspeakable thing that happened. And and they're going out on revenge because it's the cops trying to find a a serial mutilator that uses fire. That's the plot. That's what that's what's going to happen in the movie. So you think that the uh, the main cop in the blurb he gets lit on fire at some point? Is he going to spend the entire film on fire? Is he just human torching it? Oh god, that'd be nice. But no, uh, no, this is going to be more like uh, Dark Man. Like that. Like- oh god, Dark Man. <laughs> Yeah, this this is gonna be Dark Man. He's gonna uh, flames, and he's gonna be a little little mutilated, and and they're gonna go after the Silence of the Lambs, but with fire guy. Okay. In the in the beginning of this episode, we talked about a pretty common action movie trope where you know the character only has to reload at the worst possible time. Do you think we'll get any of those like action movie tropes that are just you know, really silly when looking at them critically. And which ones do you think there will be in here? I'm not super familiar with older movies, but the tropes got to come from somewhere. So at at some point, these tropes were an original idea. There's got to be a bunch of them, but I don't know enough about them. I don't know cop tropes. I feel like you're saying that to me right now, and it's just just so untrue. You watched all of uh, Samurai Cop. You know all of them by now. That's Um, true. God, all right. So let's just go through Samurai Cop real quick and see, like, what... What parts of Samurai Cop I'd like to see? Or, so like, had... what What if Samurai Cop is, like, a love letter to Dead Heat? And so there's going to be something... There's going to be a fucking, like, an actual mounted lion's head in the background of a shot. <laughs> you really did love that lion's head. <laughs> to answer your earlier question as to whether or not some of these, like, action movie tropes had become, like, a thing at this point, a lot of people point to the Rambo movies or uh, First Blood and First Blood Part 2 as being sort of the birthplace of a lot of these, you know, action movie tropes that now that like went on to become just like common film language have evolved to the point now where it's like, that's inappropriate to just show a guy unloading 90 bullets on people with, without ever showing him reloading a gun that the clip size for this gun we know for a fact only has 20 bullets or 15 bullets or something, you know? Right. Um, and the Rambo movies came out in starting in 1982, and we got to Rambo 3 in 1988, the same year that Dead Heat would have come out. So it's very possible that Dead Heat could also be using a lot of those same tropes at this point because they've become just commonplace. I don't know if this is going to be front to back action because there's gotta i think during their investigation there's there's gonna be like a chinatown that they gotta go interrogate some guy at just because okay. i feel like like cop movies at the time were really big into having I, I don't know what the appeal of it was like maybe it's because it feels foreign but also is really cheap to shoot in maybe that's what it is yeah there's probably something there you know wanting to include 
uh, a, a foreign land, even though they're the setting is in, you know, Miami or in Los Angeles or in, you know, Michigan, you know, wh- wherever this movie takes place, they still want to have that sort of exotic appeal. Yeah. I mean, it, it's gotta be something like that. Uh, unless, I don't know, may- maybe in the eighties, people were just really, really into disparaging the Asians. So are you, are you going to go ahead and put your foot down and say there's going to be some sort of like really racist caricature of a certain community or group or culture there there has to be it's, it's in the 80s it has to right right yeah maybe maybe even this this is just samurai cup his the, the partner the partner is going to be a black guy for sure because because it's not the the main cop the main cop can't be the black guy it has to be the partner do you think it'll be a good uh representation of a uh of a, of a black person or is it going to be like sort of to disparage black people no i i think it's going to be a good representation because there will be other representations that are not as good like in sure. the movie you know some some of the villains are gonna or the henchmen the not the head villain, only the henchman. The henchman can be a bunch of different ethnicities, but the main guy has to either be the ethnicity that we're trying to like make fun of here, or it's just a white guy. Yeah, just rich white guy. Which I, I I love seeing rich white guy as the main villain, just because that's that's real to that's true to real life, right? Yeah, <laughs> I definitely leave my house and I eyeball the white guys in suits more than anybody else. And white guy in suit is its own ethnicity, really. It's that terrifying amount of I have money and power and can get away with anything I want. So laws only affect the poor, and I'm clearly not. So right, I have the the privilege and the money to just do whatever in a, in a public situation that like most God-fearing people would be like, no, no, you can't say or do that. We're in public, you know, let's, let's be calm here. I don't want to get in any trouble. White guy in suit basically translates to, I don't have to worry about police officers. <laughs> I, God, I, I remember, um, not, not too recently, but a, a while ago, I went to Garden of the Gods here. I, there's signs on all the rocks that are like, you know, if, if you don't have a license and the gear for the climbing, it's a $5,000 fine. And I'm like, some rich guy is going to come out here and be like, you can't tell me what not to do when money's involved and just start climbing that shit. Yeah, a $5,000 fine. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll pay that. <laughs> yeah. You mean a $5,000 entry fee? That sounds like a problem for poor people. <laughs> if the only punishment for a crime is a fine, that that means it's only criminal for poor people. Yeah, I, I would I would love to see that in this movie. Do you think they'll cover that in a 1988 buddy cop film? You know what? They might because we we watched um what was it? They live. They were harping pretty hard on um you know the 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 bankers getting bailouts, but the 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 common man gets shit on, and that was like this uh, about the same time period, right? I believe They Live would have come out sooner than this, actually. Let's double check on that. Actually, holy shit, you sort of threaded the needle here. They Live came out the same year as Dead Heat. Oh, yeah. All right. So guarantee that's going to be something here. It's going to be, you know, the rich guy versus the working proletariat class. I will say that we should not confuse uh, a John Carpenter masterpiece like They Live with common filmmaking rabble. We shouldn't just assume any movie we, we come across is as good as what is considered one of John Carpenter's better movies. Oh, okay. The director for uh, Dead Heat, we should we should talk about him. Uh, he is Mark Goldblatt, and he's worked on quite a few movies. He's He's been the editor on some very popular films like Terminator 2, Judgment Day, X-Men Last Stand, you know, a couple of, a couple of different popular movies. 37 editor credits and only three director credits. He did a Punisher movie and Eerie, Indiana, which was an episode of... Uh, 
with a TV series that he did one episode for. Which, so had, which Punisher movie did he do? Uh, it's entitled The Punisher, made in 1989. Oh, it's not the one I saw, I don't think. And it stars uh, Dolph Lundgren, actually. Probably worth us watching, just for just for the dope dick Dolph. Dope Dick Dolph. Good old Dope Dick Dolph. Um, but he is known for his editing. He has done 37 different editing credits and worked pretty consistently in editing since 1978. When he worked on Piranha, he worked on The Howling, uh, Halloween 2, Nightbreed, Predator 2, Super Mario Brothers movie. God, what a masterpiece. He worked on Armageddon. Hollow Man, Detroit Rock City, Pearl Harbor, Bad Company, Bad Boys 2. So wait, was he an editor on The Punisher or? No, he actually directed The Punisher. His only two film directing credits are The Punisher and Dead Heat. So he's only done the two, which is really, really interesting to see him do those two sort of 1988 and then 1989 and then never pick back up on directing. So I feel like The Punisher story is also about like rich corrupt white guy so so while john carpenter might have um, had the inside track there i feel like i'm pretty confident that that's gonna that's gonna be the antagonist of the movie i am interested to see if that will come up because that's something that i don't personally remember i don't remember any of the like big smart themes of the movie i just remember this movie being such a good time to watch i remember it being very fun i, I know you know like the things that i love to see in movies a lot more than probably most people do what are some things that you can think of that like like you, you would just see in a movie and think, oh, he, he would just think that's so much fun, you know. God, you put you played me up to know a little bit more than I think I do here. <laughs> oh, you know me so well, James. Remember, remember that thing that I loved, that I said that I loved, and I was like, oh, you're gonna remember this, right? You, you remember this? <laughs> nope. No, I, I'm afraid not. That's okay. That's okay. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see maybe when you're some it. some practical effects and some single take fight scenes. Mmm, these are these are good these are good calls to make. These are things I tend to enjoy. Probably the biggest name associated with this movie is Vincent Price. Vincent Price is cast in the film as I'm gonna go ahead and say this name and I don't know if I'm saying it properly, but his character's name is Arthur P. Loudermilk. Do you think they'll actually say that name in the movie? Loudermilk? Yeah, Arthur P. Loudermilk. Jeez. Yeah, I, I it seems like the kind of thing that they would be like, yeah, your character goes nameless in the film. What do you want us to credit your character as Mr. Mr. Price and Vincent Price is just like Arthur P. Loudermilk. <laughs> yes, you got it, buddy. Vincent Price, apparently, if that's the case, Vincent Price would do great on this podcast. As soon as it feels like whenever I invite someone onto the podcast, the first thing that like gives them a, a big like uh, sense of that stage fright is when I'm like, yeah, you can just give yourself any name you want. That's what we do here. You can just Call yourself whatever you like. Just make up whatever stage name. Have at it. And most people just turn ghastly white and they're like, I have to name myself? <laughs> That's the one thing in life I was glad somebody took care of for me. There's no there's no way, like, that comes up, like, in, in any, like, mentionable sense. Like, maybe, maybe we'll see, like, on his desk or something like that. It'll be like... <laughs> pee louder milk or something like that but how nice would it be if through the whole movie it's just mr louder milk I, I i would love to hear that name more at least more than once in the film i doubt it i think that it, it's literally said zero times and it's just vincent price being like i'd like my the name i'm credited with to be a silly and fun name arthur p louder milk and I, i'd love even to find out i'd love even more to find out that uh maybe vincent price this was one of his potential stage names. Like he was like, yeah, instead of Vincent Price, I almost went with Arthur P. Loudermilk. 
<laughs> that would be that would that would tickle me pink, but uh, I doubt it. I, I I find that very unlikely. <laughs> so so I just googled Vincent Price because I'm not as privy to actors and such as you are. And um, oh, you're in for a treat. Yeah, uh, yeah. Apparently he's a he's a like renowned horror film actor. Yes, that is true. He's gonna be the villain. He's gonna be the the evil uh, burn his victims, Silence of the Lamb esque villain of the movie. It's interesting that you bring up you know Silence of the Lambs. I know that uh, the actor who plays uh, Hannibal Lecter, he is pretty known for his villainous characters as well. Two two hundred and eleven acting credits for Vincent Price, by the way. Jesus Christ! He was born, and they just started shoving him in shit. I mean, from nineteen thirty eight to nineteen ninety three. Was he acting like all the way up to his death or something like that? Because like he died in. 93 yeah i mean a lot of a lot of actors do oh okay there comes a certain point especially when you're like you know getting up in years you know where you're just kind of looking for something to do and if they you know call you up and say hey you know there's a role we want you for we're mostly going to be using your voice or you're going to be just sort of talking in this role and it seems like it's something you can do without like breaking your hip basically you probably say yes to it right just to get out of the house and do something so i i haven't i don't know this guy and i pro- i've probably seen him in movies and just not recognized him do you think like as he got older older like because you mentioned like just to have something to do do you think he gets wild do you think like older actors just start doing wild shit and they're like well we we really need his name on the on the credits so just just let him go nuts and then we end up with situations like um what's her face from brain damage oh uh maybe i know that uh lauren bacall lauren bacall is the actress the last wife of humphrey bogart humphrey bogart being the actor who is best known for casablanca so he's the the main character in Casablanca, sort of that gumshoe kind of. He basically is in every noir film from the classic noir period. Mm. I want to say he's also in the Maltese Falcon. But uh, his the last wife he had before he died, she went on to do a lot of really good acting, and she's considered the biggest star of like classic Hollywood for female stars, right? Okay. Um, she in her later years, her last acting roles when she's like in her seventies, basically, they were all super weird uh she would work with lars van trier and if you don't know anything about lars van trier he uh he's just super fucking weird with all of his fucking movies but one of the movies that she did uh we almost did it for this podcast but i decided against it because it's just so wild the movie's called birth and basically the plot of the film is a woman uh has a wonderful life with her husband he tragically dies just randomly of like a brain aneurysm or something she mourns him for like 10 years, maybe a little more than 10 years. And then she's about to get married again when a little kid comes up to her and is like, hey, I'm your dead husband, it's me. Oh, that, okay. <laughs> uh, Lauren Bacall, at the age of 70 or something, is in that movie for some reason. <laughs> it's like, I have to, that's brilliant. Well, I think that like... Um, Normally what ends up happening for female actresses, and this is a really tragic but true thing, they will uh, sort of be given an Oscar nomination at the end of their life, basically. They're, they're basically like, hey, she's probably going to stop acting here soon. So, you know, this is one of her last really good films. We'll give her an Oscar nomination for Best Actress for this. And uh, we're not going to give it to her, but she got nominated and that'll be good enough, you know? This is a very common thing that uh, the Oscars will do. And she got hers sort of towards the end of her life and she lost. She did not... Uh, win the Oscar. And after that, it really does seem like she sort of gave up on trying to do 
Oscar bait type movies. And she just started doing like lesser known indie type stuff, basically. And of course, nobody ever watched uh, Birth because that movie's fucking insane. Yeah, you mentioned it a lot. I'm going to have to go back and watch it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, feel free. But yeah, uh, I think that's it's very possible that uh, Vincent Price might do the same thing. I know that heat is kind of a general cop term, right? It's a, it's associated with the police a lot. It basically just means, you know, a firearm of some kind. You know, they're packing heat. Oh, okay. Do you think that this movie will... You know, try to have a discussion on firearms or that the, the the dead heat has something to do with with that in some way. I'm not convinced that it will, because I feel like um, I feel like they were really happy to be using guns in the movies at this time. This was when cops were portrayed as basically like modern day cowboys. Like they got to have the guns. So I don't, I don't think they're going to be disparaging guns at all. What if what if that's the horrible thing that's done to him is he just can't use firearms anymore? He can't. The guy like, can't. Guns are dead to him. Dead heat. Ha ha, get it? I mean, that'd be really smart. God, and you did pick this movie. That's what it is, isn't it? Uh, 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 do you think I'd give it to you right now? I can hope. But I don't know. I, I lied to you once, uh, Mr. Stevens. You wouldn't I, dare do it twice. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you're willing to trust me so readily again. Before, but I'm ready to get hurt again. We can just call this one a wrap. Do you have anything else you want to say before we go right into it? Any last hopes and, and prayers and dreams and wishes for this film? You know, I I hope everything I said was wrong. Like, I hope this is just phenomenally not anything I mentioned. Like, there's not going to be a serial killer. There's not going to... Maybe they're only cops for the sake of the blurb. Maybe he retires right after the opening scene, and this is just <laughs> him living out his golden years. <laughs> The horrible thing they do to him is make him sign his retirement paperwork early. <laughs> He's we we get the opening scene. And it's like I'm getting too old for this shit. And it's like actually you are. Um, have a great life. The burglars just keep like uh police like retirement forms on them. <laughs> <laughs> And that's how they we have a horrifying scene. It was like, no! And he's just screaming and like sweating and panting, and it's just him like not even being forced to do it. <laughs> we cut down to him signing the waiver. And that's how the heat is dead to him because he's not a cop anymore. He can't just go in guns blazing any any longer. Oof. Some some steamy fresh predictions here. Uh, I will say that uh Part of the reason I wanted to do Dead Heat was I was a little bit frustrated listening to the uh, Samurai Cop episode, and there was a, a little bit of negativity towards the end there, towards you know, oh, Samurai Cop is this bad B movie, you know, it's it's not it's not very good, it doesn't make sense, so on and so forth. There was there were some harsh words said to Samurai Cop, and I've always loved Samurai Cop so much, and just had an unbridled joy in watching it, and I never felt like this could have been done better. I always felt like everything in here, even all the things that were quote-unquote mistakes, were just so beautiful and brilliant and made me so happy to see them. So now we've got Dead Heat, and I'm hoping this will be a good sort of sister piece to uh, Samurai Cop. If you haven't seen the Samurai Cop episode, if you haven't seen Samurai Cop itself, please go do that, you know, sort of required reading for this episode, and, and we'll just, we'll hop right into Dead Heat, and when we get back, we'll answer... All these, all these beautiful questions you've given me here. I'm trying, trying to think of what, what the music would. What, what is cop music? Well, I guess it's sort of fast paced. Oh, oh, is there going to be like a big brass? Fucking big brass lines going. Oh, was that still? Because like we were just coming off stage plays and shit like that, so it's uh, God, there's going to be like a heavy jazz big brass scene during a fight scene. If only we're lucky. That that sort of that like that high touch. 
right, like like Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the, and the, and then like maybe some like uh, in the late '80s, synth would have been coming into play. So maybe a little bit of that like neon kind of like <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> right, almost. Uh, yeah, when, when disco was starting to turn electric. Yeah, yeah, that's what. Ooh, spicy. Uh, uh, so now we'll just cut all that together and make some outro music. <laughs> I tried to. I tried to have some standalone bits where it was just me making noises. So hopefully we can jam all that together into something. Who knows? You know, we'll probably, this will probably never see the light of day. This will be the stuff that like when we start our Patreon and we're like, yep, if you just pay $1 a month, you'll have a complete access to all of our unedited videos where we just talk a bunch of nonsense bullshit. And it's, there's a lot of dead silence in there, but there's also a lot of. (laughs) (laughs) That's what people are going to request. They're going to sign up for the Patreon and it's like, yeah, but what's the selling point? hours of us uh singing into the microphone for cutscene transitions yeah for completely unused uh content <laughs> that is probably trash and a, a, much of it is probably stuff like somebody saying you know oh hey should we use the part where you said gooks because they did say gooks in the movie but it's super you know inappropriate we shouldn't include that right <laughs> no, just arguing about like that nah, we can't keep that right <laughs> oh uh, uh. <laughs> All right, well, let's let's call it here then. And we are back from watching the movie. I know I I still love this movie as much as I I said that I, I did going into it. I still have very happy feelings as I'm watching it. I'm glad to say that none of that has deteriorated. What were what were your thoughts, Stevens? So, um, I went into this thinking that it was going to be a certain type of movie, and while I was wrong entirely, I I had a blast. That this was fun, and I found myself sitting here because uh, I had been trying to compare this to Samurai Cop, given the the time that it was released, and you know the similar subject matter. And somehow I feel like, while Samurai Cop, I feel like it tried to be a more serious movie, this was so much more competently put together. I don't know, just all all of the effects felt good. In the very beginning, where they're trying to foil that uh, jewelry store heist, and uh, he ends up crashing into the guy, like, pitting him between the two cars. I was paying attention, so I could tell, like, that they they put in a little uh, mannequin body double thing. But, like, man, was it still pretty well done. Yeah, it was, like, the the very last frame of that shot, you could tell. But up until then, it was it felt really close to the real thing. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was great. I had mentioned practical effects, and I think they did a really good job with that all the way through. I thought the makeup choices they did were really good. I was watching, and towards the end, where, like, the ambulance is, like, ramping down the hill. And, like, oh, God, it was just, it was so much fun. I, I kept my eyes open the entire film, because I know we talked a lot in the, uh, in the pre I guess we'll call it in the prediction phase of our podcast. You had said that you were going to keep a, a watchful eye out for bad pyrotechnics. You know, you're you're looking out for like some kind of a fire or an explosion that just doesn't quite look right. For a large part of the movie, there isn't a whole lot. There's sort of that scene right in the beginning where the grenade explodes a guy and his yes. I, that's actually, I, I wanted to bring that up too, because, um, I feel like that was, there was something about it. I don't, I don't know the, the right verbiage for this, but like, I could tell that that was sort of like, dr- like drawn in or like cut in, but I still think that that was 
like way better done than the practical pyrotechnics that Samurai Cop did. The explosions with, with the ambulance at the end of the movie, those were really well done. Gosh, they didn't show him on fire, but they show him like recovering from having just been on fire. And I think that's a much better way of doing that. And all it takes is some like a good makeup effects person, basically. I, I think whoever did the makeup effects for this movie did a did a really good job because like I especially liked his degeneration over the movie like they make a joke of it earlier on with the with the lipstick gag but you can tell that the the makeup effect dude was like oh no I this is I've I've taken a whole semester on what bodies look like as they decay they clearly they clearly did some degree of research on the decaying process and whatnot I loved the I don't know what this is called but when I was watching it I I just called them like reverse liver spots (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah, the yeah, where it's like his veins are like uh, all his bloods turn into mud or something like that. Yeah, and he's got like uh, he's just had these like white spots all over his face. It's when he's like going to confront the the evil doctor guy. That's the first time you really see it on him, and you've seen it on other characters uh, before him, but to actually get to see it on Detective Mortis, which by the way, uh, Detective Mortis, a little on the nose, right? Oh my god! So the first time I saw that, it's like oh, and not not just Detective Mortis, Roger Mortis. That was oh, great. I'm sorry. What's the what's the Roger bit of it? I'm maybe I'm missing something. Oh, uh, when when corpses. Um, oh, rigor mortis. Rigor oh my mortis. God. I didn't even touch that until just really. Now. Oh my yeah. god! As soon as I did that, I had to take out my little notebook, and I was like, I thought louder milk was gonna be the wildest name of this movie, but Roger Mortis. Mwah. Yeah, that that went right over my head. Doug Bigelow is like it reminds me of Deuce Bigelow, but I always thought that was just like a one off character from a much later movie. Right. I, so I don't. I don't know if that's like something that we're just missing. I don't know. He acted like a Bigelow, I guess. So maybe there's something there. So I got to thinking about the about the movie, constantly comparing it with Samurai Cop. And Samurai Cop was like this male fantasy, or at least it portrayed itself as. Very hyper-masculine, yeah. Yeah, I found it really interesting that like there was not a lot of romance pursued among the characters. Like I could kind of tell that like maybe he had a relationship previously with the mortician there at the police headquarters. I think her name was Rebecca. But there wasn't really anything pursued there, and there wasn't really anything pursued with the other one, and they both die anyways. Mm-hmm. So like the, he doesn't end up with anybody. Even in the end, it's like him and his him and his cop buddy are just like content to be like, yeah, we did a good job. Time to die. I thought that that was kind of interesting. Tell me about how that's interesting, man. What do you think about that? Because given that this was in the same era, and we start off the movie with, like, the, the cool cop one-liners, and they're they're driving the fucking, the hot rod, not squad car. They're basically cowboy rock stars. So I, I would expect for them to be like, oh, and, and at the end of the movie, I'm gonna get the girl, and I'm gonna take the medicine so I can live forever, and then me and the girl are gonna live forever, and they're like, no, this is an unholy abomination against God, and so we're gonna destroy the live forever machine and just die. I, I don't know, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that compared to what it could have been. There is some evidence to suggest and I, I don't want to blow your mind with something you've never heard before. But there is some evidence to suggest that this movie was kind of trying to have the two main dudes shipped together in a 
very homosexual kind of way. I guess I could see that because um, because they he was he was saying you know the lipstick brings out your eyes and and that interpersonal connection is what saved him at the end because Bigelow through his gay love of his cop buddy regains use of his brain. All right, if, I see it. If his plan all along was to just destroy the machine and like die anyways, you know, in a, in a blaze of glory, as he had said multiple times in the movie, I'm just going to die in a blaze of glory. That's how I thought I'd always go out. It seems like he's saying, you know, I don't care if I live or die. So why would he care if his partner, who is also dead at this point, lives or dies? I, I assume he would want the same fate for him if he's, you know, dedicated to this. No, he can't. He can't do that to his partner, his love interest, really. There are a couple of things that work against this theory. Some things that work towards it that you might not have picked up on. Bigelow being super like raunchy, sexy guy who's always hitting on chicks actually works towards the he has a homosexual love interest with Roger Mortis because that's kind of what you would do in the 80s to cover up the fact that you were gay. You would, yeah, oh man, I just love chicks. Oh, you know, all these babes around here. Oh man, I just want to grab their female boobies. (laughs) (laughs) I did not just throw up in my mouth. I'm actually really into this. (laughs) God, I'm I'm so excited to be in sex with them. (laughs) And I would only have sex with their vaginas because I just love vaginas. Oh, God. <laughs> Another thing to consider is that Doug Doug Bigelow talks a lot about how he has a girlfriend and a wife and an ex-wife. He makes references to these people. So unless this guy is just getting around, just raking it in, he's just outright lying. So there's that. And then the only thing, and 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 again, you know, in the '80s, they kind of had to like remind you, hey, remember these guys are these guys are into chicks. They love women. They're straight men. Constantly had to sort of have something to remind you. Of that and they do that with Roger out of nowhere for like no reason at all. He kind of just calls up Rebecca and is like, Oh yeah, I just want always wanted to tell you that I wish we could have made it work or something. And I guess that's sort of to highlight how miserable his situation is at the end of the film. Which, by the way, that has got to be the lowest point a character in a movie has ever been in. He just found out that his girl is dead. His best friend is dead. And also, he's been dead for quite some time. And now he, his body is going to disintegrate into nothingness, and he can do nothing about it. That's the situation he finds himself in when he's stuck in the ambulance. By the way, next to his dead lover. That's got to be the hardest set of circumstances any protagonist has ever faced. So uh, uh, while I was still thinking about, uh, all right, which which one is he going to uh, take off with? Because they even like per- like pit the women together in like, some weird jealous fit for like just the barest of moments i thought it was kind of interesting that the the lady that works for whatever that company was she had a real fish tank full of real fish that she was concerned about and the other one had a fish tank full of fake fish and i thought that was gonna mean something there and i i dropped it entirely not no idea what that led into for the rest of the movie Let's talk about embracing life versus embracing death. Um, I think the mortician character, Rebecca, is supposed to be embracing the idea of dying. Like, she's supposed to be a little bit more okay with death. I mean, she's a mortician. She's okay with owning not alive fish. They're just more convenient for her. For her, death is a feature of living and not a bug to be fixed. Whereas, I forget her name. It's, It's... 
like an L name. I can't remember. Sort of the the blonde the blonde character. She who ends um, up being dead herself. Yeah, she uh, is trying to fix the bug of dying in life. You know, she's moving away from it, which is weird because in their like sort of final acts. Rebecca goes the other way and tries to solve the dying process for Roger. The blonde lady embraces it. Yeah, embraces it and dies. It's not the movie doesn't make it very clear if that happened to her of her own volition or if this was something that the company somehow did to her. Question mark. The movie doesn't make that 100% clear. It's it's weird that they sort of flip-flop on that. But yeah, that does seem to be on on the note of, you know, why did one of them have living fish and why did the, the other one have non-living fish? One of them is supposed to be embracing death and the other one is supposed to be avoiding death. On that note, though, that's a really good segue. This movie has a lot of lines that seem to be advocating for being dead, not necessarily being a bad thing, and that being like a boon to the characters. It's a positive aspect of their journey. We've had a very recent episode where we talked about death rituals and coming-of-age rituals and how oftentimes in many cultures, if you die during one of these dangerous rituals, that is seen as a good thing. It's it's positive, it's celebrated, you were, you were strong enough to try. And this movie sort of seems to be adhering to that ideology. Whereas Prey, the episode where we originally talk about this, Prey did not do that. Prey specifically stated, if you perform this ritual, the only point of doing it is that you survive. You think uh, it was trying, like this movie was trying to do something than smart there because i feel like it was just him sort of accepting his circumstances and realizing the benefit of it because like we go into the movie with him being like oh and they just you can't they don't die when you shoot them isn't that weird and um then he's like oh i don't die when they shoot me what a what an amazing superpower this is when it's on my side of the fence so while it is easy to read the movie that way there are a couple of lines that lend themselves to my argument here when they're in the library and he sort of runs away and bigelow chases after roger he's he's like wow man you know being dead really agrees with you you're 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 in such great shape and then he specifically says remember in the academy they would always tell us that the only good cop or like the only bad cop is a dead cop basically that he, he says that like you can't be a good cop if you're a dead cop and he says but that's not true you're proving them wrong you are both a good cop and a dead cop okay bigelow actually has quite a few lines where he says something akin to that you can't get them if you're dead and then he does he gets them because he's dead actually there's there's a lot of cool lines like that like uh the blonde lady says something like are you all right and he says lady i'm dead <laughs> oh the one-liners in this movie i know they just hard and fast the whole time so good so what were the worst parts of it we've we've kind of just been jerking this movie off what were some of the worst parts of this movie for you so i remember mentioning that there was going to be a chinatown (laughs) and and did you just jump out of your seat when it happened because i remember it happening and me being like i had totally forgotten this actually does oh god as soon as they're like we need to go to chinatown and i'm like no fucking way And then we go to, like, the most stereotypical Chinatown, and I'm like, no fucking way. And then we go into the most racist little meat market. (laughs) And I'm like, fucking, I nailed it! (laughs) I'm not 100% sure why it had to be there, but I somehow, like, it was shoehorned in. And then I don't know if that whole scene with the the meat coming to life and, like, just a raw liver coming up and trying to strangle Roger there. Like, it it felt like a funny scene. 
Like, it just, something about it was out of place in the movie. And I, like, while I appreciated it and I had a lot of fun, it's like, I'm over here wondering if they're like, yeah, we're, we're talking about death rituals and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And also veganism. We're just going to shoehorn a little veganism um, scene into the movie. Okay, so it hurts me incredibly deeply to hear you say that the greatest, the greatest piece of practical effects cinematography ever yeah. put to film... <laughs> Uh, is a is a is a disappointing scene for you or feels out of place it felt that it wasn't disappointing just felt out of place the, the part where uh the, the big pig carcass is jumping on top of him and he's like how do we kill this thing and then bigelow says well we could drown it in a1 sauce that was the only disappointing part for me and only because <laughs> only because he says we could drown it in a1 sauce but they're in a China like butcher shop or a, a Chinatown butcher shop. Oh, and they didn't drown it in duck sauce. Why not duck sauce? And then right, <laughs> right when he says that, he turns to uh, a duck in a little like stew. What is that called? Like a stew pot, and it's full of liquid. And the duck like turns to him and makes some like undead duck noises, like brains whatever and he blows its head off and then it falls back into the liquid that's in the stew. And I'm like, if he had said duck sauce here, this would be so fun. But he didn't. He didn't that, say it. That was the only aspect of that that was disappointing. And also the fact that it was a Chinese butcher shop and not just like, if they had just said, oh, the, the clue that we're getting for this leads us to go to the meat market. And they go to the meat market. And that way it's not like just this weirdly racist for no reason thing. Because like, it, it certainly is sort of framed that way where it's this big, angry, not, not conventionally attractive Japanese man who's chopping up a chicken, we're supposed to look at that and go, ooh, gross, why would you ever do that? But like, that is the most normal thing in the world. He is a butcher, right. this is this is what the job entails. If you're a butcher, that's what you do. I, I agree that the, the setting for this is probably the most upsetting part about it, but everything else, oh, and back to, uh, I know we talked about this in Brain Damage, and I, I said it out loud while I was watching. I was like, there's that there's that blue lightning visual effects guy back at work again. Oh my god. Exactly. That was the other thing I noticed. Like while I'm looking at all the practical effects, I'm like, the makeup's great, and they like the explosions are kind of cool, and it's like. And then we got the guy who's just his whole career is just meticulously drawing lightning, and I'm like, oh, bravo, man! Like you go get him. That's our boy back at it again, doing the Lord's work. So he's just got a replica of the bring people back to life machine hanging from the chandelier of his back alley Chinese butcher shop, which would lead one to believe that they have a couple of these sort of like knockoff versions of the machine in various given places as we go it like it it, it keeps making rules like at the end when they're when he's like when uh when body doc there is like you'll never take me alive and he, he kills himself and they bring him back to life and he's like you ever wonder what happens when you uh, bring him back to life again and the whole body explodes and it's like that that was never brought up previously in the movie what would make you think that would work and then even if we go back to the chandelier scene it's like i don't know it didn't revive him a second time it was just targeting the meat so there's a couple things here i i do agree with you the movie did continue to come up with rules until pretty much the last scene of the film they came up with that rule where it's like his brain has been so damaged for being dead for so long that uh, he's just a mindless slave now. And he's able to sort of knock him out of it by reminding him of these wholesome moments that he's had, slash and or these, these very romantic moments that they've had, Ooh. depending on how you want to read it. Right. He then blows his own fucking brain out of the back of his skull and just immediately gets revived. And he's like knowledgeable enough, like the very second of being revived to say, 
no, don't put me in the deep fryer a second time. Fuck. Right. Like, I would think that after the talking about the guy being brain dead, then the removal of brains would be the one thing that you couldn't fix. I also like they sort of play up him, like, shooting these various executives. But, like, Vincent Price's character can just put them in the machine and they're they're back to good as new, basically. So shooting them didn't do anything. I guess. I mean, maybe that's why he's like, no, 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 don't break the machine. Like, oh, they, did blow, they did blow up the machine. Vincent Price was great, by the way. I was so happy to see him, like, actually getting to do things. I thought he would literally only be in the movie in the VHS. In where- the tapes, yeah. Yeah, well. yeah and, then to, and then to see him at the end. It, it was nice to see him uh, monologuing at the end there. And also, like... <laughs> I don't know exactly what we called out in our preamble about um, some rich white guy being the bad man, but it's like, it was all the rich white guys. Yeah, there was like one rich white lady and then like six rich white dudes. Right, and he's he's just being like, and poor people deserve to die, and God loves the rich people, or if not, we'll pay them. And it's like, God, I just, Vincent Price, I, I can't think of anything I could add to that that would make me hate rich people more. You've truly created a genuinely evil character. <laughs> it was it was so good to see Vincent Price. And he has that one really haunting line that I feel like really encapsulates like the, the horror that this movie's trying to get at. Because this movie is like an action comedy, but it has something horrific in it. The idea of you could live forever, forever. And that's like Vincent Price's like last line effectively. And he delivers it with that sort of, it's supposed to be kind of haunting, almost like a ghost or like a, it's like a prediction or like it's, it's supposed to sort of chill you to the bone a little bit. And he does such a great job job with it and it really did it it, like it stuck with me i i I think back to it and i'm like yeah that was the that was the horrific aspect of this movie and the more you think about it the more like the characters walking away and saying basically like and now we get to die thank the lord we can finally die now that is them escaping the horror of the film that's fair yeah because um i i do remember him like like i'll give you give you money and power and and you can live forever just let me also live forever and it's like no it's uh that's that's not that's not uh, very Christian of you, Mr. Loudermilk. We're just going to... I'm going to go reincarnate into some chick's bicycle seat now. That is really interesting to point out. This movie almost never makes any references to, like, uh, like Christianity. Alternative theologies? Well, well, it doesn't make any references to Christianity, but it does make a reference to reincarnation, which is explicitly non-Christian as a post-death afterlife kind of scenario. Right. We talked about the most disappointing part of the movie for you. The dis- most disappointing part of the movie for me was uh, when we find out that Deuce Bigelow has died and they don't immediately revive him. Because in my head, I was like, again, I haven't seen this movie in a while. So I'm like, uh, I remember that Deuce Bigelow is in, in the whole movie, but I had forgotten that there's like a good 10 or 15 minutes where he's not in the movie. And those 10 minutes or those 15 minutes where he's not in the film, absolute trash. The, the most boring and lame parts of the movie. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, like you said, this is this is when Roger is approaching the lowest point of his life. I think that's where, like, the start of the buildup is. The fact that it happens so shortly after, like, uh, like just before that, we have the scene where they, they leave Bigelow, and he's, like, looking concerned after Roger as he drives away or some shit like that, and I'm like... Oh no, is Roger going to get into trouble? And it was actually Bigelow that got into trouble. But yeah, it's just like, in rapid succession after that point, everybody just fucking dies. And I I thought this movie really did a great job of playing with the idea of dying and how action movies kind of do everything they can to make sure that the main cast doesn't die. 
And this movie kind of went the other way with it, where it's like, no, almost every character in the main cast dies. Uh, the only character in the main cast, I guess, who doesn't die is sort of the, the big villain, Vincent Price's character. He doesn't die. We're supposed to assume that Loudermilk has revived himself, right? Yeah, or he invented the machine and had somebody else put him in it or something or other. By destroying the machine, they effectively killed him, right? Well, we don't know the science of how the machine works that way. That's one of the few rules we don't really get. They explain that there is some sort of procedure to make people laugh longer than the 12 hour time limit were initially given but they don't explain how that works arthur p louder milk oh and they they did say his name multiple times in the movie i was fucking yep. i was i was hyped for that they said the whole name too they didn't leave out the p <laughs> like every time no the, the first time the very first time they say arthur louder milk and i'm like i need the p give me the p <laughs> and i got it i got the p boys but yeah, uh, they never actually show us what the procedure for making uh, someone last longer than the 12 hours is. You know, we could speculate that because of the way that the blonde female character sort of expires, that maybe there is an aspect of that that requires them to get touched up and go back to the machine for some reason or another. But we could also speculate that that's not the case and that, you know, she just allowed herself to expire by not taking some pill or not doing some specific thing that she needs to do to make sure that she lives forever. The movie doesn't give us clear instructions on this. We could assume that Arthur P. Laudermilk goes on to live forever, or we could assume that he deteriorates within the next 12 hours, or we could assume, you know, we could do any number of things. I will say the scene where Roger Mortis dies is especially tragic for, for like, no reason. <laughs> oh, the, 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 the first one in the little airlock chamber? Yeah, yeah. So that whole thing was kind of weird because, like, Bigelow turns to the dog that, like, looks perfectly healthy but is in a cage and then turn, turns back and it's like, yeah, alright, I, I get it. They were gonna they were gonna kill the dog. And then he brings it up later and it's like, he was killed. Where they killed dogs. And it's like, that was a pretty cute dog. I don't know why you're detracting the dog so much in this statement. Yeah, it felt like the movie was... I, I don't know. I think that it's probably smart filmmaking to put that cute dog there and then it's sort of juxtaposed with with roger dying and you're supposed to kind of like connect them and be like oh roger was innocent and that dog is innocent and i love the dog just because it's a cute dog it makes me feel extra bad for what's happening to roger and i don't know if it worked that way on me but i certainly felt very bad for roger in that moment i was like this has to be one of the worst ways to die right and the and the movie tries to like i don't know if this is to add to our suspicion of the blonde lady like she's just talking about like killing animals like it's like totally chill and then we see that cute ass dog and we're like yo i don't want that dog to die <laughs> <laughs> this is when we have to kill them you know this is where they're ethically put down and it's like what's up just adopt the dog out lady what's wrong with it <laughs> i also love how their uh characters were so trigger happy in this movie people would like at the drop of a hat just pull their gun out and start shooting <laughs> Right. And I guess when you're like a zombie person who only has a couple of hours to live anyways or whatever, you have to keep working for this scummy guy for the rest of your undeath. You're kind of like, whatever, I'm, I'm looking for some action, you know, first chance I get. But Bigelow is like fighting that like three-faced biker guy. Yeah. Why didn't we get more of those? I felt like... We got the one really cool, uh, maybe they spent all their budget on that one fight with the big three-faced zombie monster man, but I, I was hoping for more of those like big over-the-top kind of crazy amalgamation monster creatures. Right, as opposed to like, uh, I think the best we got was the two more dead-looking guys that they fight behind the girl's house, like one of them dies in the, in the hot tub and the other one dies in the pool. Yeah, those were the deadest-looking ones, e even the guys in the beginning who like aren't talking 
talking about being zombies as much. By the way, what what's the practice? Where do those masks come from? Because those are, I feel like every time I see those masks, those are purely, I'm the evil man mask. Like, what's, at least ski masks, like, came from a, a place. What, what kind of fucking masks are those? I had no clue. I was watching this and thinking that as well. I was like, I guess back in 1988, you could just wear anything over your face and that was enough to get away with a crime. Right. Well, what did he look like? And they're like, I don't know. He was wearing sunglasses, so he was an anomaly. <laughs> well, <laughs> we should note uh, that sort of in a, in a weird instance of life imitating art, in 1999 or 1997, I don't remember, uh, almost 10 years after this movie's made, there was a shootout in Los Angeles that took over an hour to wrap up where some burglars had like just heavily armored themselves and the cops like hand pistols were not enough to pierce through the armor. So they just kind of like walked out of the wherever they were robbing the bank or the jewelry store or whatever, just getting fired upon. And the cops were like, what the hell? Like we're making clear shots on their chest and like heads and whatnot. And it's not doing anything. One police officer was able to get a lucky shot, shot off on like one of their ankles or something, eventually apprehend them as a result of it. That uh, shootout in LA led to the LAPD being allowed to carry high caliber rifles. I doubt that uh, those people were inspired by this movie, but this scene sort of plays out weirdly similar where the cops are making like dead shots on these guys, you know, catching them in the chest and, you know, the head and, and, and whatnot. And it's just doing nothing. So they have to like get a little more creative with how they take down those guys in the beginning of the film. But that's just a, a weird little bit of history that sort of accidentally coincides with this. And I know that there are other movies that were probably made, you know, before this that have even maybe even closer representations of this. I'm certain that those guys who robbed that bank or that jewelry store or whatever in LA in 1999 or in the 1990s, they probably were like, oh, wasn't there like a movie that did something like this? Oh yeah, you know, let's try it ourselves. And it just happened to work wildly well. There's also kind of like a dig at Disney in the animal euthanizing scene where they're like explaining how the animal euthanizing room works. And Bigelow says, I feel like I saw this in, at Disney the other day. I missed that line. I must, God, I must have fucking stopped paying attention for a second there. Yeah, there's a lot of like blink and you'll miss it. Really good comedy bits. Like uh, in the beginning when they're like getting called to the scene of the robbery and Roger like, you know, kicks the car into high gear and whips around a turn and everything. And he loses his hot dog and he loses his hot dog which also you know there's there's got to be something there for the for the homosexual roger and doug love theory yep, yep. O- only gay men eat wieners he's eating a wiener he loses <laughs> it and looks directly at roger i don't know something something there <laughs> But uh, uh, he says, he specifically references Dirty Harry. And Dirty Harry is one of the like most famous cop movies where the cop specifically is sort of a loose cannon. Right. It's probably one of the first movies to do that where the cop is willing to go above, or, or not above the law, but like under the law, I guess. He's, he's willing to do vigilante slash anti-hero type stuff to get justice or what he decides is justice. So it's, it's interesting that they say that. And like, there comes a point in this movie where it's very clear that, uh, Roger is like, no, I'm, I'm dying. So I don't follow the law anymore. The law, what are they going to do? Put me in jail for two hours. I got to pee so bad. My teeth are floating. It was another blink and you'll miss it. Really funny. Oh, God, I did love that one. I loved yeah. it. God, for the next episode, you got to use that trope where it's like, uh, where, where you shoot the control panel. And so the default state of the door is to open up like what a, what a poor security system this is. What was it? They go into the back of the China shop and they discover that they have like a little machine that animates a, a dead animal back to life for a couple of seconds or whatever. Yeah. And he's like, Oh, look at this, a duck head. This could replace the whoopee cushion. <laughs> <laughs> 
and they do have like those like squeaky what like rubber chickens that are a thing so i don't know yeah. if he's referencing that or what i don't understand the joke here but it does feel very appropriate like bigelow is just such a good fun character god i loved everything about that his mullet was just everything his mullet was bay af fam Pretty much the first like discussion in the movie is uh, Bigelow talking about how how good he looks today. <laughs> He's like, uh, "Why didn't you tell me we're going undercover today? I look like a like a like an FBI agent at a, on a Macy's Day parade or some shit." And he's like, "Oh no, come on, man, you look great." <laughs> and like, just Next imagine, and fuck you. Just imagine that that scene, that ex- that exact dialogue was played out by uh, Robin Williams in uh, Birdcage instead, right. uh, and his and his lover. The dialogue fits perfectly. Even the delivery of it fits pretty close. We wouldn't have to change much at all here, almost. Right. Uh, it, there's a lot of weird references to like how these guys are extraditing the law. They would say things like, uh, "Imagine what you could do with a search warrant." <laughs> Oh my god. So speaking of that, like they have the one scene where they're getting in trouble with the police chief. I couldn't help but feel like I I wish he had the passion the police chief from Samurai Cop had cuz like he I just, I'm like man, he's not angry enough. I just I just want him to scream with like spit flying off his lips like you motherfuckers getting me in trouble again. And it it felt like he had more reason to be mad at them than the police chief had for being mad at Samurai Cop. Like this is Samurai Cop's first day on the job, assumably he doesn't have any other like you know instances of him fucking up on a crime activity thing whereas these guys he like lists off like 19 different things these people have done wrong and they're on their last fucking leg and they're in so much trouble and that scene felt kind of unnecessary to me because at a certain point those stakes that they had established that they're going to get fired from the police force do not matter in the slightest (laughs) Right. People are dead and being zombified and shit. Like, we did not need... Oh, and and don't forget, at any point, our boys could lose their jobs. (laughs) Right. Over parking tickets. Uh, I don't know if that was supposed to be something to, like, let us know that, like, there are stakes of, like, you know, living people, but they stop mattering once you're dead. Once you're faced with your mortality, all this other shit, like having a job or your parking tickets or other... other I mean, that... I think that would have been nice if that was one of their outro jokes while they're talking about, like, getting reincarnated. They're like, oh, man, I never paid those parking tickets. They do reference it again after uh, Roger has been reincarnated, where they go to the blonde lady's house. They get back into their car to drive. He's like, oh, we got another parking ticket. How many does that make it? And he's like, do you care? And he's like, good point. And they just drive off. But that doesn't resolve it in a way that's like, we have more important things to worry about here, don't we? Right. (laughs) I I think that would have been like... A cool thing because I'm I think about that all the time when you know when people are being like less than kind to each other or you know there's these sort of arbitrary you know bullshit things that cause anxiety and, and, and stress and difficulty in people's lives you know your, your body's going to start deteriorating here in the very foreseeable future and your life's going to become increasingly more difficult and there's even going to come a point where you probably can't even take care of yourself anymore. That is a definite. That will happen to every single person who is alive at some point. Keep in mind, that's not including like the ridiculous amount of like fatalities and injuries that occur just just driving around every day. So you could even not taking old age into account, you could just be driving to McDonald's and bam, right there, you're following all the laws, you're doing everything right. And car hits your car, disabled from the neck down. All of these things are things that nobody ever 
ever thinks about when they're like deciding how to treat each other or deciding how to like live their lives. They're always things that we're very good at sort of like pushing to the back of our brains. I think that it's interesting that this movie sort of brings all of that stuff that like your mortality is brought right to the forefront and the movie doesn't ignore it. It doesn't push it back. It doesn't try to get away from it. It is constantly saying, yes, mortality. Yes, it's a good thing. It's something that we should be embracing and recognizing and thinking about as we move through our lives. I would I would love to see a sequel to this movie that's just instead of like an action, it's just a straight comedy, but it's like a slice of life kind of thing where it's just Roger Mortis and Doug Bigelow, you know, maybe a freak thing happens where they live a lot longer. We can even get the same actors to come back and they are just these really disgusting, decrepit. They are relying on each other to like live. Um, they're all that they have because nobody else is experiencing life the same way that they are. And they but, just... but they're doing all the wholesome things like skipping along a beach together while bits of them fall, fall off. Yeah. And we could even keep that sort of ambiguous, are they or are they not relationship that they had from the first movie we don't have to seal the deal here i'm totally fine with that in, in 1988 was bisexuality even like a thing that was accepted as a possibility maybe maybe that's what they were going for in the movie is that these characters have female love interests but they also have each other that they're interested in too and this isn't like a homosexual thing this is a one of the first movies to platonic openly, love between men you know maybe platonic love i i certainly think that uh this movie has a has a, a way of reading it for that but i also think there's a way to read this that's like maybe they were bisexual they they have their romantic and sexual love for one another but they also have romantic and sexual feelings towards women and they sort of explore both we certainly don't get as much you know sexuality between the two uh male characters but we get a lot more romance between the two of them than we get for any other pair of characters in the movie right literally roger calls up rebecca to give his big like profession of love to her to let her know that like while facing his mortality he wants to convey his true feelings for her and he basically is just like i really wish we could have made it work and that's it like that's the height of his romance for her meanwhile he's like getting choked to death by his partner who he could just shoot up at any moment and he's like remember that time you told me that my my lipstick i bought really brought out my eyes <laughs> that was super sweet of you <laughs> shit man that's some stuff that you wait f that you use on your like uh, your wedding vows you know <laughs> i knew i loved you the moment that you told me that my lipstick really brought out my eyes that was the day yeah I, I really love this movie i have i have so much like i really appreciate it even if we don't think about it too critically like just the fun parts of it you know the, the crazy oh, it, was, it was fun front to back like aside from that short little bit where he's like fuck my partner died Oh, this lady dead. Oh, and the, the girl that I loved once upon a time is also dead. And then, like, immediately we, we get back into him using a an ambulance as a roller coaster. And, like, he even looks like he's having fun. When he gets up and he's got, like, all this burnt rubber on his face. And, he's, and his like, hair is wild. Off. Yeah, yeah, he's got, like, that cool hair. Best scene in the movie, probably when he's having, like, that, uh, that gun shootout with the other zombie guy. And none of them are trying to be tactical about it at all. They're just, like, spraying each other with bullets to no effect right i i love that like that's something that he embraced over the course of the movie like he in the beginning like as soon as he dies he's still hiding behind stuff and he's like oh no i've been shot wait this isn't nearly as bad as it as it was but he's still like trying to stay behind cover by the time we get to the end of the movie he's like no i'm the fucking terminator yeah i can just i can just walk at a hail of bullets and it's fine i was thinking about that as the scene was playing out because i do remember that's one of the the few scenes that stands out in my memory is him just like standing in front of another guy who's firing a fully automatic weapon at him and he's just like taking all the bullets i remember that being a scene and i'm like why don't they have more of this in the movie because it, it even seems 
at the end of the movie when he's like strolling into the Dante pharmaceuticals, which like Dante is kind of a reference to the divine comedy and, you know, dying and trying to come back to life from death. He comes into the building, like sliding in and trying to tactically shoot the other guys without them having as much of an opportunity to shoot him, which is basically those are the the hidden unspoken rules of any person who teaches you how to like how to operate in a gunfight you know you, you kind of want to give them less opportunities to shoot you and elevate your opportunities to shoot them but for him that doesn't he doesn't need that he could just do the scene from terminator one where he walks into the police station taking bullets left and right and him you know shooting all the cops along the way because their bullets don't do anything to him so why not right and it was good to see him eventually escalate to that it was weird to me in my head i'm like yeah he can just he can just get shot up like he's good to go i always feel bad in these episodes where like the movie doesn't really offer a whole lot in terms of like critical movie analysis mostly just sort of a fun movie but there are a lot of fun movies that i want to introduce to the world and have people hear about and say oh wow i haven't heard of that one i'll go check it out and if this podcast does anything to help people to do that. I would, I would like to have the opportunity to give, give somebody a good time watching Dead Heat. I mean, I'm definitely going to recommend this one to, um, I got that work buddy that was, uh, really, really into, um, Samurai Cup. And you yeah. know what? He got to watch the sequel. Lucky bastard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell, tell your friend that he is the only reason we're not watching Samurai Cop 2 because he, he went out of his way to go and watch it and say, Hey, you know, these are all the cool things that happen. He ruined the movie movie for me by saying that you know becky was it becky uh yeah sure i don't know the blonde lady in samurai cop (laughs) she gets to go off and have a little happily ever after kind of moment and that was one of the big tension things that i was interested in to see if in samurai cop 2 not only does she return but how's she holding up because that movie was terrible to her (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna go tell him about i'm gonna tell him about dead heat and be like dude you gotta watch this because this is fun. Like, I can't I can't think of anybody watching this and not having a good time. It does feel weird that, um, I know that Rush Hour was kind of the big cop movie that sort of defined buddy cop movies for, like, ever, basically. I can't really think of another before that. You could argue that Die Hard was very influential to the buddy cop formula, but there's not a whole lot of buddy copping that happens in Die Hard. Most of Die Hard is Bruce Willis sort of doing it up on his own and occasionally with his buddy cop partner. Yeah. I think the closest to buddy cop we ever got was the the one where it was him and Samuel Jackson as Zeus. And even then, that was hardly buddy cop. But I, I remember Rush Hour being a huge one. It feels like there are a lot of movies that predate Rush Hour that were just a lot more fun than Rush Hour was. Yeah, Rush Hour was 10 years after Dead Heat. In modern movies, we don't get a whole lot of uh, buddy cop movies. You know, we'll get one every now and again, but it feels almost... Uh, inevitable that somebody will point out that actually this buddy cop movie is kind of stealing the formula from this other buddy cop movie that was made in you know 1979 or you know 1985 or some other such thing at what point is it stealing the formula and more just like though this is a genre this is a genre that has been done to death is what it is i think buddy cop movies like had their day in the sun where they just they went on for a long long time ad nauseum over and over and over again it's the same thing with like cowboy movies there was just a time where we made every possible cowboy movie so it's easy for someone to be like well wolverine's not a really original movie it's basically just the plot to shane because whenever we make a western we're going to sort of accidentally step on the toes of something that came before because hollywood does this thing where they pick one genre or one type of movie one thing they do it into oblivion until it no longer makes any money and then they try to find the next thing and they scramble for a little while we're gonna eventually 
reach that point with superhero movies. And I'm shocked that we have not yet. It feels like we've been doing superhero movies for the last 20 years now. I, ugh, I would love to start getting away from that and start moving towards something new. I'm wondering when horror movies are going to like become in vogue again, because I know that uh, there was a period of time where they were seen as a very popular option, and that's when we got sort of the uh, the classic horror films, you know, Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, The Mummy, all those uh, from like the 1930s and 1940s and whatnot. Even then, they weren't really seen as like big, big movies. They were usually kind of like more budget options. So I'd like to I'd like to see that where horror movies become like the the big thing again that would make me incredibly happy what uh, what genre of film do you think is going to overtake uh superhero movies once we finally get away from that oh god what do, what do i want to see god, can we can we just have some more like jerking off the supervillain movies i'd love that oh i'm sure before superhero movies are like done done they will dip into those like more anti-hero and more like actual villains being the main character kind of movies we already have the perfect supervillain movie megamind yeah no that's true it will likely never get any better than that and i i know that the, the counter argument to this is that megamind kind of becomes the hero by the end of the movie it's even arguable that he was ever a villain to begin with yeah yeah it's arguable that he was sort of a hero the whole time question mark you know it doesn't seem like people weren't living in uh, metro city it seems like it was pretty well populated and so there's a very serious chance that uh megamind's various antics were an attraction for the city and not a thing that pushed people away he certainly put the city in a period of like not goodness i guess you know that was only very temporary but yeah i think that uh it, w- it would be nice to see more uh, villain-led movies that are purely about being a villain we have joker as probably one of the few examples of that and it's, and it's not supposed to be certainly they try to make the villain sympathetic in that movie but they don't try to paint him up to be a hero of any kind his actions are looked at fairly seriously throughout the film as you know negative and evil you excited for the uh the new uh joker movie coming out with uh there's yet another joker yeah they're gonna have lady gaga play uh harley quinn in it uh do we know anything about the premise so far it is supposed to be a musical oh this is great so I... in the what what did they name the fucking spinoffs where it's just like harley quinn and the rest of like not suicide squad but suicide squad for the ladies birds uh, of prey or something birds, birds of prey is exactly what it is so i really like the scene harley quinn is uh basically in some technicolor cartoon dreamland thing while she's killing people and i think if they just did a musical and it was something similar to that with joker like i i like that idea that there there's someone saying they're not actually living in reality there certainly is a lot of uh film shorthand that has become popular insinuating that viewing reality through the lens of musicals and dancing and these big extravagant song and dance numbers as a representation of lunacy I guess that's a very that's a very common thing in Hollywood lately so I, I don't think this is a bad idea I think it'll probably work really well and be, audience members will get it I'm hoping for those like stark changes where it's like right. they're doing the big like song and dance number and then all of a sudden it just goes to drab like gray Gotham City like sad town around them and it's like wow no wonder Joker and Holly Quinn want to live in this like bright and colorful world that they experience whenever they're having like a, a manic lunacy fit it just seems so much nicer by comparison well hey you know I think that we have enough here probably to make a full episode of this here podcast do 
you have anything else you want to say just before we you know move away from this this episode no i think everything got covered that i wanted to bring up i'm glad you showed me this movie this this is a blast. i'll probably fucking watch it again i think i i told ashley about it she watched it as well and she's like she she opened up the movie and it's like Ugh, why does it look like crap and i'm like babe it's uh it's from the 80s like you can you cut it just a little bit of slack she's like i guess by the end of the movie, she's like, I thought this movie was going to suck. That was pretty good. There is a degree of disappointment that I have with our podcast in that I don't think that we have ever gone, we have we have yet to watch a film that is older than 1970. And I know that there's a lot of really good movies made pre-1970. So I'm going to have to try to find us some of those. Some, some of those older, old gems. Older movies. And it... it it frustrates me because I know there is like a certain phenomenon. I don't, I don't know if I'm like a person who noticed this or if it's like an actual thing that's been documented, but I'd love to see some studies done on this. But people do have like a threshold for the age of a film and their willingness to watch it. So I don't think that it's at all uncommon for somebody to experience that. But I do think that the more people are exposed to older films, the more that that sort of threshold goes away, that that sort of barrier dissipates and that they just open themselves up to, yeah, I'll, I'll watch it. I don't care if it looks if it looks like it was filmed on a piece of toilet paper. Like it's fine. It's a movie, not a not a microchip. It doesn't have to work perfectly, or it doesn't work at all. That's kind of one of the things I hope to sort of work through with this podcast is the idea that movies have to be quote unquote perfect, or they don't work at all. We talked about this a handful of times, and yeah, I, I feel like I've made my feelings on this pretty clear. Movies don't have to be perfect. They can have mistakes in them, and they're still really really good. I have an idea for a movie already that we could we could watch. We'll have to get to that when we get to it. I know that we have uh, quite the lineup selected going forward, actually. None of which is to include Samurai Cop 2. Fucking oh, 0% of it. We're not going to do Samurai Cop 2. Don't ever expect Samurai Cop 2. I'm going to watch my fucking self. Yeah, I'm going to go watch it myself. Boo, boo, boo. Well, I hold the keys to the castle and I'm not watching it. The day that we do watch it for the podcast, you can be all like, well, I've already seen it. All you want. <laughs> well, uh, uh, let's uh, go ahead and cue the outro music for this, for today's episode. Alright, I, I can't remember the uh, intro music so oh god you are incredibly self-conscious my friend no no i was thinking of uh this fucking jack black song called sax man have you heard it yeah i have oh god so just basically that just, burp, 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 burp. <laughs> just really bad outro music i always uh i always feel like whenever we do uh this sort of making the music ourselves thing we always end up doing like just a weird version of jazz it's never we never go for like a do do it's never like any orchestral shit or like when are you gonna just make bagpipe noises come out of your fucking mouth my man oh god that you know what i saw a video the other day about somebody making a a really good saxophone noise and that's what that's what we're gonna do we're gonna have like a oh god how does that one and fuck it that's gonna oh that is that is a pretty solid one actually i always there's a genuine fear i have of uh accidentally like stepping on copyright as a thing so i'm like you're you're just so good at at copying those fucking noises you're like oh god this is just um this is clearly uh, this is unchained melody like one for one what an asshole and then like like play it next to the actual sound and put it in front of a judge and they're like see it's the exact same notes note for note he's (laughs) copying us 
And then like, I'd go in front of a court and be like, look, look, man, I'm, I'm about as good at this as anyone else. I imagine I didn't know what I was doing. I just, and the, and the judge is going to just going to be like, not knowing isn't an excuse. You stupid piece of shit. <laughs> imagine having to get up on stage. Like, would you like to perform for the, uh, for the jury? And you're like, okay. <clears throat> pretty, pretty, pretty. <laughs> it's like, by God. Each of the jury members just has a single tear rolling down their face. <laughs> you get a fucking a courtroom standing ovation. Why would you stop making such beautiful music? <laughs> oh god. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> we should go the other way with it and do it like a SpongeBob where we're just like LAS! <laughs> <laughs> See if anybody still listens to our shitty podcast after that. My God, I was fine, except you, 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 you guys started getting quiet, and there was SpongeBob right there. I actually have a movie that that might work for. Um, I don't, I don't know if you're strong enough for this film, though. Oh, really? You have to be an incredibly. Right, one day, when, when, when you're done with your training, we will present you with this film and see if you have the, uh, the fortitude. It'll be your rite of passage. And if you die during, that will be something you know we're celebrating still for having the courage of to course. try. All right, we'll, we'll call it there. <laughs> <laughs>